Welcome to the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast. I'm your host, Mary Jolkowski. I'm an author, speaker, and all-around self-love advocate. And this is the podcast that'll inspire you to love yourself. Hello, my self-lovers. Before we dive into today's podcast episode, I want to make sure that you're giving yourself the gift of self-love. Now, if you don't know what the gift of self-love is, it's a workbook that will help you build confidence, recognize your worth, and learn to finally love yourself. And it's now available in stores and online worldwide. Oh my goodness, I've been waiting to say that because I've been working on this book for years. I poured my heart and soul into it, compiling everything that I teach at my retreats and putting it into this heartfelt, relatable, and actionable workbook for you. The cool thing is this book is a combination of me sharing my life story and everything that's helped me on this self-love journey, including body acceptance, and it's a workbook that you can actually write in. So every single thing that I share, you can put into practice right away. There are quizzes, journal prompts, self-reflection exercises, self-love challenges, all of which will help you with body image, confidence, self-worth, and self-love. I'm holding it right here. It's right in front of me and it's absolutely gorgeous. Not to toot my own horn or anything, but we've nailed the design on this one. It makes such a wonderful gift both for yourself and for your loved ones. Perhaps you have a friend that could really use this message and that, you know, needs a little push, loving push in the right direction. And I think that this book is just a great gift. Hence, the gift of self-love. So if you haven't gotten it yet, you can get it today by going to maryscupoftea.com slash book. I'm certain that the tools I share in this book will change your life as much as they've changed mine. So again, that's maryscupoftea.com slash book and give yourself the gift of self-love. Hello, my self-lovers. Welcome to another episode of the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast. Today, I am joined by a guest who was actually recommended to me in the DMs by one of our listeners. So if you were the one who sent over Nadia Okamoto, I am so, so grateful. Nadia is the co-founder of August. And if you haven't heard of the company August, it's a lifestyle period brand working to reimagine periods to be powerful. So you can see why I fell in love with the founder. She's also the author of the book Period Power, a manifesto for the menstrual movement, and founder and former executive director of the nonprofit organization Period. Outside of her work in menstrual health, Nadia is also a mental health advocate, and she's known as the Gen Z marketing expert. This woman does all of the things. And guess what? She is only 23 years old. We're actually the same age and our birthdays are three days apart, which was a cool discovery during this podcast episode. And I just felt so seen by her because I think being a younger person and having so many big hopes and dreams and also some accomplishments under your belt, it can often feel very invalidating in the world because people tend to underestimate you. And the thing that I've heard so much is like, you're so young, you don't know what you want, or what could you possibly know? And Nadia is the exact opposite of that message. She is like, yeah, I started this company when I was 16 years old. And it is really inspiring just her confidence in that. And she recently graduated from Harvard College, class of 2021. Her debut book, Period Power, is published by Simon & Schuster in 2018. 
and it made the Kirkus Reviews list for Best Young Adult Nonfiction that year. She's also the former Chief Brand Officer and Board Member of JUV Consulting, a Generation Z marketing agency based in New York City. She's been recognized on the lists of Forbes 30 Under 30, Bloomberg 50, Ones to Watch, and People's Magazine's Women Changing the World. In this 30-minute interview, we dive into not so much of what it's like to be an entrepreneur and an influencer and having your work be on social media and being successful at such a young age. We do talk about all of those things. But more importantly, the takeaway from this conversation is that you can be all of the things and doing so much and accomplishing a tremendous amount while still struggling with mental health. Nadia so vulnerably talks to us about her mental health journey and what have been some important key components of fostering self-love while being a high performer, and somebody who struggles with mental health, which I think isn't talked about enough. A lot of entrepreneurs and founders will say that everything is so great and they started this company and it's going amazing, but they don't really talk about what's going on with them personally behind the scenes. And Nadia is the exact opposite. She shares everything so, so openly. So without further ado, please welcome Nadia Okamoto to the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast. And hello, Nadia. Thank you so much for joining us today on the show. I'm so excited for this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I am also excited for this. Somebody actually recommended you to me because I talk a lot about periods, specifically my use of the period cup and how it's so much more environmentally friendly and fights period poverty, which you know so well about. And I'm interested to hear your story and how you started being an activist for that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So much to talk about. I think For me, I started my career in 2014 when I was 16 and was really passionate about period poverty. And I think, you know, more so learned about products along the way. And then, really, like over the last few years of working on the nonprofit side and writing a book and then working on the marketing side, started to get really passionate about how the products could be better and how we could kind of change, use brands and consumerism in our culture to really change culture around periods. And that's what's led me to what I do today, which is working on August, which is a lifestyle period brand that makes more sustainable tampons and pads. Mm, I love that. And I also love that you started... I love that you so confidently said, I started my career when I was 16 years old. And I know you hear this all of the time, but I'm actually your age. So I mean this from like a friend to friend kind of thing. Like that just gave me so much empowerment. Oh, thank you. No, I mean, I think that it's interesting because I feel like when I was 16, I definitely did not think that that was like you know, consciously, this is my career sort of shit. Like, for me, I think that even when I was 16, and for several years until maybe this year, I always thought of my career as like starting after college and was still thinking about like grad school. And I graduated from college just a couple months ago. But when I really think about like, okay, when did my like actual work start? It really was when I was 16. Mm, Congratulations on graduating college. What were you studying? I was studying sociology with a secondary in women's and gender studies. Oh, amazing. And that just fits so perfectly into what you do for your career now. Yeah, it's definitely helped along the way. Why period poverty? What first sparked the idea? And why did you feel so passionately about menstrual equity? 
you know, what sparked the idea is I started hearing stories directly from homeless women of using things like toilet paper and socks and brown paper grocery bags to take care of their periods. And to be honest, I think it was just a really big privilege check of realizing that even regardless of what my family had gone through from a financial instability standpoint, I never have to use like trash to take care of my periods. And I think it wasn't ever something like I consciously was like, this is something that I am going to do for the rest of my life. It was more like, this issue that I just started obsessing over and couldn't stop thinking about. And so, yeah, I was just kind of learning about period poverty, learning about the tampon tax and just not being able to stop thinking about it. That's led me to kind of doing what I do today. Mm. Oh, I love that. And it's definitely a privilege check for sure. I remember reading a statistic that correlated or I think maybe directly linked period poverty to early childhood marriage because what happens is in rural underdeveloped areas when girls can't take care of their periods they end up missing school and when you miss a week from school every single month you fall behind and then you don't finish your education and then you get married off really young and then you have babies really young and that just leads to the continuous underdevelopment of certain nations because we know that gender equality is linked to the development of nations. So all of that to say, it's just crazy how it can cascade. Yeah. I mean, it's really fascinating because I think exactly what you're saying is kind of why I started the work too, because I think when people hear period poverty, the first thing they think about is like other countries. And what I think we don't realize, especially being in the US, is it's actually happening like here, you know, even today, like the most recent national study that was done by period found that 25% of teens in the US have experienced period poverty and not being able to afford period products. In the first ever citywide study done around period poverty in St. Louis, it found that 46% of low-income women had to choose between a meal and period products. And, you know, still today in the US, food stamps don't cover period products as necessities. And so period poverty very much exists even within the US. And I think, yeah, when you look globally, it's, to your point, not even just about access to period products, it's cultural too, right? Like in many countries, culturally, female genital mutilation and child marriage happen the week after a girl gets her first period, not necessarily because of a lack of access to product, but truly because culturally getting your period means, oh, biologically, you can bear children. So that's when a lot of the gender roles in early civilization were built around. Wow, that is truly so, so eye-opening. You mentioned that we're dealing with something called the tampon tax. What is that for those who don't know? Yeah, so the tampon tax currently exists in 30 states in the US. It used to be in 40 when I first started all the work and there's been so much progress. I mean, thanks to kind of a huge wave of activists that I'm very thankful to play a small part of. But yeah, so the tampon tax is a sales tax on period products that considers them non-essential goods. And meanwhile, products like Rogaine, Viagra, products that are for like old male hair growth erections, you know, are considered necessities and don't have that tax. Mm, so women have to, or people who period have to pay more to take care of their periods, even though it's something that's definitely a necessity. Yeah, it's basically just, you know, our society, especially from a policy standpoint, does not consider menstrual hygiene a necessity. And so when there are things like the tax where it's determining what are the medical necessities and what aren't, period products do not fall under the category of necessities. Hmm. This is a selfish question, but can you tell us about how you personally played a role in 
getting the number of states that have a period tax or sorry, a tampon tax from 40 to 30? Like what, what was that like? Is this when you were in college or? So when I was in high school, like the nonprofit that I was leading period, a huge part of the programming was around trying to just inspire people to care about period poverty and learn about period poverty. And so we did a lot of kind of larger campaigns around let's get people to talk about the tampon tax. I think that I, I definitely can't take claim for you know any of those successes. I think that for me, like I always really focus on how do we create the platform and the conversation and the interest from like public opinion in general to talk about periods more and how do we raise awareness that the tampon tax even exists because unfortunately, like so many politicians are unaware that their own states have the tampon tax, right? It's kind of this archaic law. And when we don't talk about periods, we don't talk about the related issues to it. And now I think a lot of my work over the last few years has been, you know, really just trying to speak about it and bring attention to it. And with August, we are one of the first kind of direct consumer brands that really wanted to take a, a, you know, a tangible stance against it as well. And so we actually don't pass the tampon tax onto our consumers. We cover it as a company. Wow. When did you start August? You know, we started building in early 2020 and closed our initial fundraising round to start the company and launched our products in June. And most period products take five to eight centuries to decompose. Our tampons and pads are fully biodegradable within a year and we have BPA-free plastic applicators and you know committed to being carbon neutral in our supply chain and covering the tampon tax. So I think for me, you know, I was also an avid cup user actually until my period started being really heavy a couple of years ago. And I think from, you know, starting to build August, you know, we really went back and forth on what products we were going to build and decided to do tampons and pads because the majority of people that we were speaking to currently use tampons and pads. Mm, Wow, that is so incredible. And you just recently graduated and you built this company alongside so much of your activist and nonprofit work. And you're 23, right? Yeah. And I mean, my my whole team is we're all Gen Z. (laughs) Wow. So what's it been like for you and maybe even for some of your team members to often be the youngest and say most successful like career wise or from a capitalistic viewpoint? Like what's it been like to have people just be so in awe of you? Honestly, it doesn't really feel like that because I mean, so my co-founder and I, we led a company beforehand. The first company he started and I joined as chief brand officer for a couple of years was Juve Consulting. So he started that company when he was 16 and I started period when I was 16. And so I think like right now, if anything, we feel like more veterans of, you know, company like being young founders because we started our first, you know, organizations or companies when we were 16. And so it's not even something I feel really conscious of. And like right now, I'm the oldest person on my team. And that's never been the case before. Like even at my last company, I usually want, you know, hire people who are much older than me because I, I really had so much learning to do and I still do. But right now, I have the opportunity to actually work with a lot of people who are younger than me. So our youngest team member is 13 and we work with so many incredible like high schoolers and middle schoolers even around kind of the August community. And so to be honest right now, like when I think about my life, I rarely have moments anymore where I'm like, wow, I'm so young and I'm doing this. If anything, I feel like, wow, like I have learned a lot, but I feel actually on the older end of things because we have such a young audience. Wow. What about when you were like just starting out like 16, 17, 18? Did you ever deal with imposter syndrome or feeling like people would 
discredit you or anything like that? Oh, yeah. And I mean, I have imposter syndrome like all the time now, like, but less so about my age and more just so like, I feel like an undeserving human, you know, like, but I think that imposter syndrome for me, at least is like a daily part of my life. And it always has been. And it's a huge part of like my own mental health and depression. And I think that for me, it's more like when I was younger and just getting started, even the idea of youth entrepreneurship wasn't like the big kind of trend it is today. Mm hmm. Yeah, for sure. Where do you live, by the way? I live in New York City. Oh, okay. Do you feel like there's just more of like hustle culture amongst youth being in like a big city? Well, I actually grew up in Portland, Oregon. So for me, I I don't think it was a hustle culture in Oregon. That's for sure. Probably more so in the city where there's like kind of a lot more exposure to that. Mm, Yeah, because I I moved from the Bay Area. I was born in Palo Alto. And then I moved luckily when I was like six or seven, but I kept going back because my dad lived there. And I just always wondered like what kids who lives in cities, like even just having more access to resources or just being around those kinds of people, if that played a part. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if anything, it was very much like related to kind of growing up with the mom that I did, who was, you know, my mom was always very, very about encouraging us to take action and you know, not really wait for, you know, society and, you know, always very kind of wanting to us to push our own boundaries. And so I think if anything, like my upbringing with my mom was definitely a huge part of it. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. What about you have two sisters too, right? Are they like similar in mindset to you? Both my sisters are very creative. One is like an incredible opera singer and the other one's like an artist. So yeah, I think both my sisters, like my mom growing up, kind of social impact and using everything that we have to do something that was good for the world was kind of like an expectation of my mom. Mm. Can I ask where that came from? Because I don't, I don't know if a lot of parents raise their kids in that way. I think if anything, it was just like my mom's own like kind of value system of, I mean, our dinner table conversation, the placemats we grew up with were always very much related to like current events and like trying to just be really aware of what was happening in the world. I also think that like growing up in New York City post 9-11 and then growing up experiencing instances of financial and housing instability, we were always very hyper aware of kind of safety and privilege as a spectrum. And so it was a huge part of kind of conversation in general growing up. Wow. I am low-key so envious that that was a part of your conversation because I had this like major just shake up in my 20s, like probably in the later years of college. And then as I graduated, because not that I felt like my whole life is a lie, but my narrative was very much like, you're an immigrant, you have to work hard and make it. And it was just like very black and white. And when you said like, the levels of privilege and and safety and access and all of those themes, like, I can't imagine how much different my life would be if I would have been just slightly more aware of those things as at least as a teen. Yeah. It's kind of a beautiful thing of like what we see happening on social media, right? Which is like social media as toxic as it can be really opens up doorways of, you know, if you don't have conversation in your own household, how do you kind of expand and broaden your horizons of understanding too? Yeah, it definitely provides opportunities for that. You mentioned struggling with mental health. Can you tell us more about your mental health journey? I know you talk pretty openly 
about it on social media. So anything you're comfortable sharing? Yeah, so I have, I mean, I've always struggled with anxiety my whole life and depression, but diagnosed wise, like I live with PTSD and BPD, borderline personality disorder and depression. And so I think that for me, like, I'm still very much on my mental health journey, but I try to talk really openly about it because even today, when I think about the biggest emotions that I feel when it comes to my own mental health, is like loneliness and feeling like the world doesn't get me or I don't get me or, you know, why am I so isolated in this experience? And it's a huge part of why, like, every time I open up more about it on social media, I've been able to just like really find more healing through like a larger community of people who have experienced similar things. So I think for me, talking about mental health publicly is something I'm passionate about from, you know, destigmatizing periods, but it's also selfish in many ways of like, just really, really craving more of a community around these emotions that I feel all the time. I really relate to that. It is somewhat of a selfish pursuit, even though it's also like a passion and, and the way we serve the world. Do you ever grapple with the dichotomy? I think I read this in one of your Instagram posts of like, just this weird balance between being a high achiever and a high performer and wanting to to do good and do a lot and somebody who struggles with mental health and desperately needs that time off but doesn't often give yourself permission for it. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's like the story of my everyday life. (laughs) And I mean, also at the same time, I think that we definitely live in a society in which like, resting isn't valued in the same way that monetary or external validation progresses. So I think that it's not even just a mental health thing. It's kind of like grappling with the fact that we live in a society that doesn't value people for their wellness, that values people by their utility. And I think that that's something that we're definitely seeing more of a cultural reckoning with, but something that I I think is related to mental health, especially as someone with like BPD, where I really struggle with my own self concept of self worth. But I think more so in general, just around like holy shit, capitalism really screws with how we think of our own value. Mm, yeah, for sure. You said that like imposter syndrome is like a daily thing. And you mentioned self worth a couple times. What does that really like feel or sound like to you in your head? Well, I think, you know, part of my diagnosis as someone with BPD is that like my resting state is feeling like a worthless piece of shit. And like, I kind of have that narrative of like, I am nothing like, what am I if without like work? And a lot of that is like rooted in my own childhood trauma. And I think that a lot of kind of my own therapy and healing work is trying to learn how to derive my self-worth from just inherently being human rather than by what I can accomplish or by what I can like give as impact to the world. And I think that for me, like a lot of what I've been thinking about even this year is like, you know, I have been very quote unquote successful and I work really hard. And it's just trying to be a lot more present in my own consciousness of like, Am I hustling or working because I want to and I'm passionate and I'm leading from like a place of abundance? Or am I doing so because I feel inadequate and I have something to prove? And I think that a lot of kind of what I try to do now is just like create time in my day where I'm able to like just be more conscious and like have even the emotional mental space to check in and where I'm able to just reflect on like, why am I doing the things I'm doing? And how do I make sure that I'm actually prioritizing my own wellness too, so that my kind of work in the space I'm truly passionate about 
can be sustainable, right? And so just like prioritizing sleeping and, you know, habits of self-care is just like a huge part of my commitment this year. Mm -hmm. It's so insightful to hear the behind the scenes because on social media, it feels like you're just so balanced between what you share about your career and your activism and your company and then some of the fun and funny stuff that you make and your relationship and then your family and your sisters and like all of that. It's just, yeah, it it makes me realize probably what people see from me maybe. I don't know. And then behind the scenes, it's like, I am a worthless piece of shit and I am in therapy. (laughs) What has been like the most important part of your mental health journey? Sleep for sure. Yes. Oh my God. You're the first person to say that. Like sleep is so highly underrated. Yes. And I mean, I've had insomnia like forever. And I think that especially like going to school like Harvard, I feel like I very much grew up in these cultures where like being exhausted was kind of glorified. And I think that a huge part of what I'm proud of even this year is learning how to just like love sleep and sleep like at least eight hours a night. And that hasn't been the case. Like I've been truly like an insomniac my whole life. So yeah, I would say sleep is huge. And I think sleep is number one. Yeah, sleep is number one for me. Sure. I've also struggled with insomnia my whole life, as have both my parents. But I feel like 2021 has been, oh, dare I say a little bit harder than 2020, just because in 2020, we got like a pass, almost like a permission slip. And now it's like, all right, back to it. And a lot of people are just feeling so behind. I know even with like social stuff and like work stuff and just constantly feeling like I'm trying to stay afloat, you know? Yeah, no, I've definitely been like trying to get used to even needing to do in-person meetings. And I mean, I think that because I'm like on social media and I'm charismatic online, people think I'm like very extroverted, but I'm actually like much more of an introvert. So getting used to even having meetings in person has like definitely been draining. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the stuff I think about is like, what can we really take away from 2020 and like, make it more lifelong? Like maybe it is the fact that we're sleeping more or chilling on the couch or cooking at home or taking walks around the block or just like indulging in the simple things. For sure, for sure. You share a lot of your partner. I'm really curious to know like what your relationship is like, how you met, are you very similar or different? And you also talk openly about your sexuality. And I'm interested to hear about that if if you want to share. Yeah. So I'm in a romantic relationship with a guy named Henry. And he is super sweet. I actually just did a podcast episode where I was like, I'm just going to gush about my boyfriend for 30 minutes and just kind of talk about like our, you know, not very special way of meeting, which was like randomly at some sort of party. But And I think that we're very different. And I always get asked, like, as an entrepreneur or an influencer, am I interested in other entrepreneurs and influencers? And the answer is like, I never really have been. And it's not like a conscious thing. It's more so like, I can barely make time for myself. And I think a lot of what I've needed in a relationship is like someone who can really help ground me in the present moment. And one thing I've been talking a lot about is like, It's been really special in my life in the last year of being able to date someone who honestly isn't on social media at all and like doesn't think about social media. And that's been like really necessary because 
you know, I'm online all the time for work. Like part of my job is like, you know, being so active on TikTok and to be in a relationship with someone who like has never had social media and doesn't have social media and like doesn't really like that isn't why they're interested in me too is like such an, I think just really important in my life today and definitely adds stability to my life, which is like not something I've grew up with. And he's just been really patient with me. And yeah, I'm, you know, in a heterosexual relationship now, but I do identify as pansexual and that doesn't change just because of the sex of the person I'm in a relationship with. And I've, you know, started to be a lot more open with that. Just, I think in the same way, kind of craving more of a a community of people who are able to relate to that as well. Mm, I really relate to everything you said. And I also love TikTok because there's this whole community of like pansexual or bisexual women who are in relationship with cis men. And it makes me feel so validated. Yeah, no, it really does. And I think that for me, like seeing that content is like a huge reason why I like even started to feel okay sharing a lot of that journey. Right. It was just like seeing other women who are like, no, I'm, I am still who I am. And my experiences or my preferences shouldn't be discounted by that. And that's been like so, so helpful for like my own, like kind of confidence and mental health for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like your partner really compliments you. I think a lot about how underrated compatibility is or not even compatibility, but yeah, compatibility, just like making sure your lifestyles kind of go together like a puzzle piece, not necessarily the exact same puzzle piece, because obviously that wouldn't work. But my boyfriend is also not on social media. And he's an entrepreneur, but in a totally different industry. And he's just so grounded. And he was the one who taught me about the power of just like rest and time off and relaxing and watching TV and having fun, all the things that I, I never even had TV growing up. Like I've never in my life had TV until now. And yeah, it definitely feels good especially because there's such a balance. Yeah. I think that like having someone to like learn how to like chill with has been really big. And I think that for me, one of the things that I struggled with from like a mental health perspective is kind of losing sight of who I was outside of work. And a lot of that is like related to social media of like, I think especially being in, you know, when a lot of your income is like from being an influencer too, you get into that head face where it's like, well, who is Nadia on social media versus like, is that all I am outside of that? And I think that it's been like a really kind of big learning experience of like, okay, I'm more than just who I am online. Yeah. Yeah. Our work doesn't leave us. Like most people can clock out and be like, you know, this is what I do for a living. And then hopefully they have other things or a lot of people are learning to have other things. But our life is our work and our work is our life. And like, it's definitely a mind fuck at times. Yeah. And I mean, I think that a huge part of the challenge too is being like, okay, as an influencer, every part of you becomes like an opportunity for commodification, right? So it's like taking the, you know, bout of capitalism of being like valuing you by, you know, what it could be commodified as and making it even more literal. Right. Of like, okay, hair sponsorships, skin, you know, what you wear, what you eat, what supplements you take. And I think that for me, like, I think that that can be a very powerful and exciting thing. And I think it can also be like something that you have to be really careful of. And for me, it's really taken a long time to be able to like, definitely like learn my own boundaries with it. 
Yeah, yeah. It's exciting and exhausting simultaneously. Exactly. Yeah. For sure. What's the biggest lesson you've learned about self-love or anything you want our self-lovers, our podcast listeners to walk away with? I think that a big part of it has just been like defining self-love for myself. I think that is, I mean, coming back to social media is like one solution to this is just being like, fuck it. I'm not going to be on social media anymore. But I don't think like in the digital age that we live in, that's always a possibility. And so I think that a lot of it for me is like, okay, I can define social media for myself, which I think can be hard sometimes when we live on social media where self-love looks like bubble baths and morning routines and, you know, journaling. And like, that's not what self-love looks like to me at all. And so I think like the biggest lesson has been like, this finding self-love for myself. Mm. And what does that look like for you personally? Sleeping eight hours a day and working out once a day. And usually I'm working most of the other times. But I think that for me, it's really kind of leaning into just like sleep and working out and also being able to to just like have time for like the people that I love as well. Mm-hmm. Connection is just so, so important. Uh, I love this so much, Nadia. Thank you so much. This has been so incredibly enriching and I'm so inspired and amazed by you. And it's just, like I said, it's so empowering knowing that we're the same age. I think this is the first time I've talked to somebody on the podcast who's the same age as me. Oh, nice. When's your birthday? February 8th, 98. What about you? Oh my gosh, I'm February 11th, 98. Oh, no way. Oh my God, we were born three days apart. That's crazy. That is seriously, truly wild. Well, I love that. (laughs) I feel even more connected to you, my fellow Aquarian. Where can our listeners find you on the interwebs? Just at my name at Nadia Okamoto and August is just at it's August wherever it's August or it's August.co. Thank you so much. I'm going to be ordering some August pads for myself and my little sister. I love the mission behind everything you do and just so excited that we're connected. Thank you so much. And yeah, we'll have to have you like be an ambassador or something. I would love that. That would be so cool. Oh, I love that. Well, thank you so much for having me seriously. And just have loved talking with you. Mm, Likewise. Thank you everyone for listening. We'll talk to you later. One last thing before we farewell. If you've been enjoying the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast, we would greatly appreciate if you could leave a short review on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts. Your feedback helps the show so, so much. I absolutely love hearing from you. And as somebody whose love language is words of affirmation, your words mean the world to me. Just go to the Apple Podcasts app and scroll all the way down until you see the review section. And from there, you can just tap the star thing and leave your own review. Thank you so much for supporting me and this greater message of self-love for all. Also, feel free to send this episode to a friend and spread the gift of self-love. And speaking of the gift of self-love, make sure you pick up my book, which is available in stores and online worldwide. Just head to maryscupoftea.com slash book, and you'll find all the links to give yourself the gift of self-love. I love you all so, so much, and I will talk to you next time. Mwah.